Thank you, Bill, for that uh, wonderful introduction. I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for bringing me here today uh, very generously and uh, to Maria for the uh, admin support to make this happen. Uh, it is wonderful to be back to Oxford after four, four or so years uh, since I graduated uh, in 2014. Uh, and actually, when I was a teaching student, I came quite frequently here to uh, the anthropology department to listen to talks, and particularly those by Biao. Uh, so I'm no stranger here, but it feels a little bit strange to be on the other side of the you know, uh, table this time, giving a talk. And I feel quite nervous, uh, to be honest. Um, I feel privileged to be part of this uh, series, and um, of course it is a huge honor to be the first person starting this. Uh, a task which I feel totally inadequate to. So I think what's going to happen today is this is going to be a very mediocre opening to what's going to be a wonderful series uh, following on. Uh, so please do not uh, you know, stop uh, showing up just because this morning today. I happen to know many of the other speakers who are coming in, in the later of this term, so they are, and they are great. So, um, but anyways, I'm already here, so let me try to share a little bit uh, you know, with you about my work. Um, so basically what I want to do in today's paper is really to make the case for understanding the global, a mixed uh, the case for understanding international student mobility as a form of reproduction migration. I propose to understand the global landscape of student mobility as a reproductive system that creates and recreates inequalities of various kinds and on various scales. And to illustrate my empirical case, as you will see here, is that of China. I will attempt to locate China's place in the global landscape of student mobility and examine the multiple reproductive consequences of China's engagement in this uh, global system. Um, I can't stress enough that this, uh, this paper is very much a work in progress and uh, you know, very rough and uh, there, aren't, uh, there probably are many shortcomings, so I welcome your uh, comments and criticisms along the way. Okay, um, so what I'm going to do in the next uh, uh, maybe 15 minutes or so, uh, I tried to run this a bit long, but uh, is that, first of all, I will just give you a little bit of background of what international student mobility is. Uh, I will then make the theoretical case for understanding ISM as uh, a reproductive mechanism, and I think there are two chief mechanisms. Then I move on to the empirical case of China, and here I will talk about, uh, in terms of background, the contemporary ISM from China, that is, you know, students going out from China to elsewhere, and the international student mobility to China. Uh, then I will offer uh, ethnographic uh, cases. Um, and here, by ethnography, I must qualify, because, because I'm speaking in an anthropology department, uh, so I felt it's sort of compulsory for me to offer a little ethnography, for otherwise I worry that Biao would not uh, reimburse my air tickets. Uh, <laughs> but, but I must claim that because I'm not really trained as an anthropologist, so my use of uh, the term ethnography is, uh, is probably not very legitimate. And I understand that, uh, so I'm one of those social scientists who use the term ethnography uh, sort of in a sloppy kind of way, and I know that irritates anthropologists a lot, uh, so I beg your pardon on that account. Um, after the ethnographic cases or snapshots, I will proceed to uh, offer a little bit of analysis and uh, hypothesis. Hypothesis because not all that what I'm going to say will necessarily be backed up or you know stems from the uh, ethnographic cases. And uh, I will draw on more wider sort of anecdotal observations as an overseas Chinese, if you like, uh, and uh, you know li uh, you know studies from literature, so so as to sort of um, uh, offer some. Um, hypothesis about you know, China's place in the global reproductive system of student mobility. And finally, I'll we'll, uh, quickly conclude. So that's the sort of agenda uh, for, for what's to come. 
Um, global student mobility, right? Um, it is a huge industry, as everybody in Oxford would know. It is supposed to be worth four point four trillion dollars by you know in twenty thirteen, uh, and the higher education portion of that, of course, is very important. It's uh, one point nine trillion dollars estimated. Uh, internationally mobile students, or um, it's usually defined as people who pursue tertiary and higher education outside their countries of citizenship. Um, and of course, international mobile students have increased in the in number of the decades from you know, 1.9 million, 1.3 million in 1993 to currently, we, you know, uh, I think it's safe to assume about 5 million mobile students. Right? These are we are talking about tertiary level students. Of course, there are also students who go abroad uh, at uh, you know, younger ages and so on, but those are not in this co uh, conventional definition of ISM. So when we talk about ISM, we typically refer to uh, tertiary level students. Um, okay, um, so now I'm going to try to make uh, the connection between student mobility and reproduction migration. And here I quote Biao, uh, reproduction migration refers to mobilities that serve to reproduce, maintain, and enhance human life, which may include migrations of domestic helpers, medical patients, birth tourists, uh, marriage partners, and so on. Uh, and I argue that education indeed is about the reproduction of life, about lives private, social, institutional, and political. Uh, but here, I think there are two main mechanisms through which international student mobility serves as a reproductive uh, system or mechanism. And the first uh, is this. Um, among the various theoretical lenses used in existing scholarship on ISM, one particular theoretical perspective can be said to dominate much of the literature. Um, informed by Bourdieu's seminal theory of forms of capital, this perspective sees student mobility as a mechanism of reproducing social class through uh, the conversion and accrual of cultural capital uh, across borders. In essence, it is argued that the moving, uh, moving abroad for education is a strategy for accumulating prized cultural capitals, often associated with the prestigious West, uh, that would feed into the reproduction of existing class advantage. Um, and implying the uh, reproductive nature of student mobility, researchers have emphasized that educational mobility tends to be uh, pursued by those already privileged, so all those international students in this room, you know, privileged. And that mobility in general favors the middle class. So there is that uh, emphasis that this, this is a reproductive mechanism of the already privileged. Um, only more recently have scholars emerged to show that not all, uh, not all mobile students are necessarily privileged. And I consider myself as having contributed to this uh, in a small way. Uh, indeed, as student mobility proliferates and becomes accessible to youth from a wider spectrum of socioeconomic circumstances, including less privileged and not so affluent demographics, there are increasingly evident class-differentiated experiences and outcomes associated with educational mobility. This widening of participation in ISM is believed to further exacerbate the hierarchy formation within the global uh, higher, uh, higher education landscape. Later, my ethnography will sort of show that. And ISM as uh, a reproductive mechanism, as I just described, may be characterized as uh, primarily private and individual. Uh, in most existing ISM studies that use this Bordiasian uh, theoretical lens of reproduction, the cost of study abroad is borne privately by the mobile students themselves, or more accurately, by that of their, you know, by their parents. Um, uh, in, in other words, or families. In other words, investing in the next generation's educational mobility is a family's private reproductive project. 
with the implicit objective of contributing to the overall family social economic goals, be it the maintenance of class position or the achievement of uh, upward social mobility. The desired product of this reproductive migration, an educated individual, supposedly with enhanced cultural capital as a result of studying abroad, is normally expected to contribute back to the closed circuit of value and or status of the private family. Furthermore, insofar as educational mobility is about positional differentiation and distinction, namely to distinguish oneself from those who cannot study abroad, who cannot access uh, prestigious forms of study abroad, I think it is safe to say that ISM is, in this sense, is very much individualizing and privatizing in that sense. Um, so this is what I call the first mechanism, the private and individual logic of uh, education mobility serving as a reproductive mechanism. And the second mechanism pertains to the reproduction of people as a public and political category. Uh, from the standpoint of the capitalism and nation-state, reproducing human beings as an indispensable source of labor and consumption is of fundamental importance and is public and political in nature. The need for capitalism and the state to use education to reproduce people with desirable technical and ideological attributes, uh, of course, has been well theorized in the classical sociology of education literature. Um, in more recent context, this is reflected in the ubiquitous keyword human capital, which indexes an ideological assumption about the positive correlation between the quantity and quality of human resources a given country possesses and its national wealth creation and economic growth in the context of knowledge economy. Now, adding international mobility to the equation means that the, the stage or the arena for the reproduction of human capital becomes a space of transnational flows and appropriation. And in theory, a state can either can both lose or gain human capital amidst increased international flows of uh, talent. So, uh, indeed, this is the fundamental premise to notions such as brain drain, brain gain, and the global war for talent, these catchphrases you must have heard of. Um, uh, uh, wherein a neoliberal ideology about the transnational mobility of skilled labor is found to have powerfully reoriented many nation states' policies and responses pertaining to immigration and education. So in more concrete terms, right, since the 1990s, uh, international student mobility became integral to many uh, advanced Western countries' efforts to enhance national human capital, usually through subsuming ISM policy under broader policies and strategies governing skilled migration. Um, so higher education is used as a pipeline to channel in talent from around the world, and immigration policy tools such as you know, post-study work visa uh, in the UK, or used to be, uh, and uh, calibrated naturalization policies such as uh, point systems in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, are then used to retain talented or highly skilled graduates, thus appropriating them as, uh, as receiving state human capital. So, um, as, as some scholars have argued, the development of this education-immigration linkage uh, observed across various OECD countries represented these mature economies' responses to, uh, the, to the arrival of knowledge economy, uh, sometimes to the shortage of skilled labor, and in some cases to the more basic uh, issues of, uh, of the more fundamental challenges of demographic sustainability because many you know, OECD countries were you know, having sub-replacement rate of uh, you know, uh, birth rates. 
So you should, uh, it should be acknowledged that this, these, the specific policies and uh, strategies adopted in different countries uh, differ notably, as do the complex empirical realities and on-the-ground experiences. But nevertheless, an overall governmental rationality of viewing student migrants as suitable replenishment and enhancement to the receiving country's labor pool, uh, sometimes population pool, uh, became widely legitimate across a developed world and was implemented in one way or another. So really, that, that sort of wraps up my discussion of the two mechanisms. One, a private individual reproductive mechanism, and the other, a public political social mechanism of how the student mobility uh, serves reproduction. So now I'm going to move, uh, move on to discuss my empirical case, and that of course is China. Um, let's look at uh, ISM first of all from China. Um, China is now, of course, the world's largest sender of international students. And by the way, when I say sender, of course, China is not an you know, uh, agentic entity that sends students in that you know, simplistic way. And I'm, I'm well aware of the, the pitfall of the methodological nationalism of treating this country as if it has certain agency. But still, I, in, in, in this case, I'm trying to locate this country uh, in, in the global system. So I, I don't know how quite to deal with this tension with uh, methodological nationalism, but uh, let, me, let me go move on to see how, how if this works. Anyways, China is now the world's largest source country of mobile students. In 2017, uh, more than 600,000 students went abroad to study. Uh, and uh, between 1978, of course, China has opened up uh, and uh, reformed and opened up to currently about 5.2 million students have accumulatively uh, gone out to study. And at this moment, it is estimated 1.5 million Chinese students are studying in Western, uh, you know, uh, not, not, not Western, in, uh, you know, uh, higher education institutions overseas. Um, international student mobility from China, there are probably about, uh, there are, what, what I, I think there are three key trends about uh, outbound uh, student mobility from China. First of all, there was a shift from the initial phase, uh, referring to late 1970s, mid late uh, 1980s, of state-sponsored postgraduate level student mobility of academic elites, to subsequent uh, shift to a subsequent phases of self-funded study abroad at both postgraduate and uh, undergraduate levels. And uh, Biao, Biao and his collaborator, Shen Wei, has done a wonderful paper, highly cited, uh, about this uh, phenomenon. So I was quoting, um, I'm quoting them. Uh, as Biao and uh, Shen uh, pointed out, in the initial stage, China's state, uh, the Chinese state's desire to play catch up with the West by investing in human capital development underpinned its efforts to send politically and professionally uh, qualified personnel abroad who were subsequently required to return to China to serve in uh, the state in important positions. In other words, the brief initial phase of post-reform Chinese student mobility, outward mobility, uh, exemplified this uh, uh, public and political logic of using student mobility right, as an intervention in reproducing national human capital. However, this logic was soon uh, overshadowed by the private and individual logic uh, which manifested in increasingly marketized and uh, uh, overseas studies that more and more Chinese citizens were able to afford privately from 1990s onwards. And of course, after uh, 2000s, it was primarily this form of private, uh, self-funded study abroad that became the mainstream. Uh, today, although Chinese state continues to sponsor a modestly growing number of graduate students and scholars, the vast majority of Chinese students uh, overseas are self-funded, about uh, 89% as of 2017. 
Okay, so that's the first trend. The second trend is the lowering age of Chinese uh, internationally mobile students, resulting from growing number and the proportion of students pursuing undergraduate or even pre-tertiary education as opposed to postgraduate uh, education study, uh, uh, studies abroad. So according to this uh, uh, China Education Online uh, sort of consultancy uh, business, um, between, uh, in a decade between 2005 and 2015, the percentage of undergraduates among Chinese international students in the U.S., of course, U.S. is the largest destination for Chinese students as well, um, increased from less than 15% to more than 40%. And the postgraduate percentage of you know, Chinese students in the U.S., decreased quite significantly as well. So you see that trend very clearly. And of course, you know, uh, the, the, the report also shows that even Chinese students' enrollment in K-12 education in US, UK, New Zealand uh, have, have been growing continuously. And I, I believe in, in Oxford there are such a few such prep colleges where Chinese, wealthy Chinese uh, you know, uh, students are coming from wealthy backgrounds are studying. All right. Um, so, and uh, through a Brodeusian analysis, uh, Biao and his uh, collaborator astutely pointed out that sending children to study abroad at younger ages, for example in prep schools, uh, required much more significant financial investment, often beyond the means of ordinary middle classes, but enabled the genuine accumulation of cultural capital, which could only take place through over time, right? So we need that length of time to accumulate that cultural capital to really speak like a you know, British or you know, the pick up the upper class accent and so on. That sort of that sort of thing. So that's the second trend. And the third trend concerning outbound Chinese student mobility is the rapidly rising numbers and percentages of students who return to China after studying abroad. Now between uh, 1978 and 2006, of all those who have gone out to study, only about a quarter returned at that point. But if you take the, uh, just a, a decade more, between 78 and 2017, the cumulative return ratio has jumped to 83%. And that's a huge jump. And of course, how to understand that? Um, this dramatic upward trend of Chinese students returning after studying abroad partly reflected China's enhanced attractiveness to, uh, due to its rapid uh, economic development. But I suspect, in my position, or my, I'm, I'm more inclined to think that this is mainly because of the rapidly rising number of students who basically could not be absorbed by the destination country. There is not uh, enough you know, space in the labor market in destination countries to absorb them. And the character of these students is such that many of them would not necessarily be able to. Uh, they, they would rather prefer to return rather than uh, staying abroad. And later I will make a few more hypotheses about this um, uh, situation. Okay, moving on quickly to uh, international student mobility to China. Uh, you may or may not know that China is actually one of the top receivers of international students as well, currently uh, ranked number three. Uh, in 2017, there are about half a million foreign students in China. Um, and of these, uh, degree-seeking students, i.e. those who are studying for a degree, for degree credential, is about covered for about half, half of them. And out of those who are doing degrees, about 75,000 uh, 75, are in graduate and uh, postgraduate level uh, you know, uh, uh, studies. Um, similar to the Chinese uh, students going abroad, even students coming into China, majority of them are self-funded. Only about 12% receive Chinese uh, government funding, and the, uh, the rest, majority, are either self-funded or funded through other means, for, for example, their home country and so on. 
Um, this table uh, shows you on the, the, the table on the uh, your left. Um, it's it's a breakdown of the top centers of international students to China uh, in 2016. I highlighted a few that uh, that would be of interest. Of course, you see India over there, USA, Japan. On the pie chart on the right, you would see that um, in fact. Asians, students from Asia account for 60% of foreign students in China. And if you count Africa and Asia, that's three quarters. So what this means is quite clearly that the majority of foreign students who consider China a viable destination to study is, is sort of from the developing world. Um, and I want, I want to show with these two, comparing these two tables, um, this is the latest data I can get hold of where uh, the, the data makes a distinction between students who are doing uh, degree studies or, non, uh, or the general pool. What you find here comparing the two tables is that when you only look at the degree-seeking students, countries like USA and Japan just disappear. And whereas you know, what remains on the right table are predominantly uh, developing countries, or you could even say countries less developed uh, than China, uh, with the exception of Korea. And that's, Korea is a very interesting case, but I don't have a, a lot of insight into this. Um, somebody else must have done studies on that. So, but, but basically, the, what this shows is that a lot of uh, students from developed countries like US, Japan, they are in China for non-degree short-term programs. And I, I would call them, many of them would actually be educational tourists on in the, uh, language, cultural immersion programs. Uh, to, for them to, to be to have fun in the sense, whereas uh, it is uh, it is students from less developed countries than China that consider China a place to receive an academic credential from. All right, so that's a, that's a backdrop of uh, you know international student mobility from China and to China. Now I'm going to proceed to my uh, two ethnographic cases, and uh, as I as I already said, right, this is really not uh, you know it's. I, I probably should better phrase it as ethnographic snapshots, um, very limited. And I also must say, uh, I must disclaim that um, I, I didn't carry out these two studies with any foresight of you know, wanting to compare them. So they, they, they are very different phenomena, so I, it's quite difficult to compare. It's a bit like comparing orange to apple. But still, I think you know, just putting them together, you do see a little bit of an interesting insight in terms of what is China sending out and what is China receiving in terms of student mobility. So I will just try this out anyway. Okay, the first case, Chinese students recruited as foreign talent by Singapore government. And of course, that was actually my uh, DPhil uh, thesis. Um, since the mid-1990s, Singapore, an economically advanced city-state in Southeast Asia with a multi-ethnic population formed around an ethnic Chinese majority, had established official agreements with Chinese government to recruit Chinese students as foreign talent. Students aged between 15 and 18 across various provinces in China were selected by Singaporean officials and educators based on academic merit and subsequently offered generous full scholarships to further studies in Singaporean schools and universities. At the peak of recruitment, it is estimated that up to 1,000 Chinese students per year were recruited. And bear in mind, Singapore is just a city-state and it really, you know, the, the school system is just you know, of a limited size. So 1,000 students coming in is a significant number. The majority of these PRC scholars, as they were known in Singapore, PRC scholars, were given full scholarships to pursue undergraduate degrees in engineering and science. In return, the scholars are legally obliged to work in Singapore for six years, and this six years is known as a bond. 
the Singapore state's intention of appropriating these Chinese students as the uh, city-state's future human capital not only manifested in the long six years bond uh, period, but also transpired through the fact that these scholars used to be issued with official invitation letters to apply for permanent residence, and even uh, generally, they are generally favored for naturalization. Yet, perhaps what highlights the public and the political nature of Singapore's recruitment of Chinese students more than anything else is a rationale never officially acknowledged, but widely speculated. Namely, recruiting Chinese migrants helps reproduce Singapore's uh, status quo multi-ethnic demographic profile, which is threatened by Chinese Singaporeans lower than uh, lower uh, rates <coughs> compared to other ethnic groups in Singapore. So, if Singapore doesn't deliberately recruit Chinese immigrant students, uh, and uh, if the current rate of uh, you know es es uh, different ethnic groups reproduction carries on, Singapore's demographic profile would slightly change, and the Chinese would become a slightly lesser majority. And that was something that, of course, the Singapore government doesn't want. In other words, as well as being an economically reproductive strategy of securing talent, the recruitment of Chinese students serves the more fundamental objective of reproducing a population of a specific racial makeup that the Singapore state is ideologically committed to. Um, I don't have time to go into why and how they are committed to this, uh, you know, uh, this uh, later we can discuss if you're interested. And this case goes still beyond one of the uh, self-publicity. Um, this case goes still beyond one of Chinese human capital being capitalized by a more advanced state for its own project of labor and population reproduction. Examining the lived experiences and aspiration of these Chinese mobile students reveals further about how they position themselves between China, Singapore, and the developed West. Just like top students in China, the most ambitious and academically capable among the PRC scholars in Singapore tend to see the city-state as a stepping stone to Western destinations, primarily the US. It is not uncommon for these scholars to plan for graduate studies in the US, and there have been some cases of scholars willing to pay hefty financial compensations to the Singapore state to buy themselves out of the bond in order to realize their dream of going to the you know, Western developed countries. For the majority of the scholars, settling down in middle-class professional life in Singapore is the most common outcome, whereas immediately returning to China upon graduation is very rare and usually a sign of failure to survive in Singapore. And uh, you know, I highlight this because later I'm going to talk about uh, you know other observations elsewhere that uh, you know where students do immediately return. Uh, those who eventually, uh, I'm going back to. PRC scholars in Singapore, those who eventually develop more transnational, professional, or entrepreneurial engagement with China typically do so after having secured Singapore permanent residence or citizenship status, and thus tend not to see China as a place to settle back to permanently. So a unique insight from this uh, snapshot of the Chinese scholars in Singapore is the prestige and the desirability continually being attached to West by Chinese students, especially those academically elite ones. Despite the privilege of being fully sponsored to study at high-quality institutions in Singapore and the subsequent access to Singapore's vibrant and rewarding job market, many PRC scholars continue to uphold the superiority of the West, in particular that, in particular that of the US. And this attests to the enormous symbolic capital or prestige enjoyed by the West, which in no small part could underpin the continued ability of Western uh, nations and their education institutions to attract you know, students from China. 
Okay, I'm going to move on to the second case, which is um, self-funded Indian students reading English medium MBBS or uh, Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery degrees in second and third tier Chinese universities. I know it's quite a you know, mouthful, and it is a very unique sort of phenomenon. Um, this, this image was from my fieldwork. Um, medicine is one of the top disciplines in which fee-paying foreign students are concentrated in China. Indian students pursuing MBBS are conducted in English, uh, estimated to be about 10 to 15,000 in number, thus constitute a suitable case for understanding self-funded degree-seeking uh, ISM from developing country to China. With public medical education being too academically selective and private provisions being too expensive, Indian students from less affluent backgrounds with not very strong academic performances who nevertheless wish to pursue medicine have traditionally looked to affordable overseas destinations such as Russia and Ukraine. Um, since 2000, uh, China emerged as an alternative destination, and by 2012, it had become the most popular destination for Indian students reading medicine overseas. Um, at the peak of uh, 2013, uh, as you can see here, uh, 52 Chinese institutions, and these are second and third tier Chinese universities. You know, it, they don't include you know, uh, universities that you might have heard of, Tsinghua, Peking, Fudan, none, none of those are included. These are second and third tier, located in provincial cities and so on. Um, they offered about 6,000 uh, uh, places in English medium MBBS program for international students. Uh, a large share of these places have gone towards uh, students from India, followed by countries such as Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, uh, some, even some Middle Eastern countries, uh, Jordan, uh, Egypt, and uh, African nations as well. Right? Um, again, an uh, image from fieldwork. Contrary to current literature's uh, frequent mention of uh, the rise of China as a reason for international students' interest in the country, my study found that Indian MBBS students were drawn to China primarily because of the cheaper tuition fees and living costs, and had little interest or knowledge in the country otherwise. The fieldwork uh, field site of Chinese University, which I went to in eastern China, charged an annual tuition fee of nearly 24,000 RMB, in 2014, which is about uh, 3,500 US dollars, uh, which is about a quarter to a third of what a private uh, medical degree would cost in India, and of course, you know, only a fraction of what it would cost in the West. Um, in spite of this, uh, according to an official from the, uh, the university, the field site of the university, some Indian students still uh, fail to pay tuition fees on time. Uh, and uh, you know, even though their family had often taken out uh, you know, uh, bank loans or loans from you know, friends' social network in the first place. My field work conf uh, confirmed that many such Indian medical students come from lower middle class or emerging middle class backgrounds in India with quite limited financial resources. Um, so, and, and commercial intermediary, and this guy uh, who is shown there is actually uh, one of the field agents recruiting uh, Indian students from the, the state of Tamil Nadu, uh, whom I met in uh, fieldwork. Commercial inter intermediaries play a crucial role in the recruitment of Indian students of, uh, for medical uh, programs in China, not only because the Indian students and their parents had to rely almost exclusively on them due to their lack of knowledge about studying in China or about medicine in that, for that matter, 
uh, but also because the Chinese host university institution had also no means of uh, re uh, reaching out or assessing candidates in India. They are just uh, uh, you know, uh, in the dark about India's education system and uh, you know, the, the qualifications there and so on. In fact, in my ethnographic case, the academic screening for admission was extremely lax, essentially down, the first, down on the first pay, first serve basis. As a result, upon, upon the student's arrival in China, the Chinese host institution was somewhat shocked by the low quality of the students recruited, which more or less defeated the host university's objectives of making some financial gains, and more importantly, reputational gains from having international presence on campus. Yes, they get international presence, as in, you know, uh, people of different skin color and so on, but they, this sort of, it, it is not the kind of presence that uh, they, they initially thought that they would get. But on the other hand, uh, the Chinese host university was also evidently ill-prepared to run English media MBBS programs. Uh, most serious were issues about teaching qualifications of program faculties, oftentimes hired in a makeshift fashion, and their English communication competencies especially those of the Chinese faculty, because Chinese uh, medical faculties are, they, they might be uh, you know, uh, proper medical faculties, but they don't have the English communication competence to deliver those courses in, in English language. And this is not helped by the Indian students, their own poor command of English language, which basically resulted in very, and I sat in to observe some of the lessons, observing very poor classroom uh, learning experiences. Um, and apart from that, uh, other aspects of students' experience, such as accommodation and support services, were also found to be wanting due to the host institute's lack of experience and sometimes lack of effort. Um, Indian students, together with other developing country students, who had limited opportunities to interact with local Chinese students and uh, society, which could be partly attributed to uh, the perceived lower status of these uh, students' home country compared to China. So, I mean, I think for those of you who have traveled to China, you, you, you wouldn't be surprised by this. Um, you know, uh, it's kind of, there, there is casual racism and so on. Um, and so all in all, the, the Indian medical students were dissatisfied with studying in China, uh, and barring exceptional uh, cases, and there are those, uh, they tend not to develop positive feelings or regard for the country. Nevertheless, uh, keenly aware of their own lack of choice, these students were willing to settle for the situation and go through the motion, which is a situation that I have elsewhere in this article uh, described as one of compromise and complicity. I think there is this complicitous relation between the, the educational provider and consumer that we, you know, I know you are not very good and I know, you know, I, you know I'm not good either. <laughs> so they are in that sort of uh, going through the motion um, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of mode. Okay. Um, I think uh, last bit of uh, ethnography on, on this case. Uh, Indian medical students and other international MBB students in China for that matter typically return to their home country to seek to qualify to practice as soon as they graduate, since a medical career in China is clearly implausible due to language barrier and uh, a million other factors. It, it is also clear from the outset such recruitment of self-funded uh, international students to lower-tier Chinese universities was not a precursor to skilled migration, neither in the view of the Chinese state nor in that of the Indian students and their families. So this is different from you know, the, the reproductive mechanism I mentioned earlier. 
for the latter, for the Indian students and their families, China's role is primarily that of a cheap alternative to help them fulfill their private, individual, reproductive desire of achieving social mobility through medical education. China's place is essentially that of a second chance to the domestic medical education that the students could not access. Um, and owing to China's advanced state of develop, development compared to India in general, it had certain appeal to the Indian students as a surrogate or quasi-developed nation. And China is very developed in infrastructural terms. There are no shortage of skyscrapers and so on in China. So that it, it provides that appearance of, uh, of uh, studying in more developed countries. Um, so it al allowed the Indian students to imitate ISM-mediated social uh, reproduction that previously only their more privileged compatriots could access. So these Indian students from lower classes in India, they could imitate this reproductive activity right, edu through education, going abroad for education. But what they found out through their actual experiences in China is that this was a poor imitation and uh, there are many problems associated with it. Alright, so that uh, wraps up my ethnographic parts of this um, the talk and then I'll proceed to a little bit of analysis and hypothesis and trying to tie up everything together because I know that the cases don't really, don't necessarily compare in sort of very neat way and um, and uh, I stress that the, uh, I make hypothesis because not all what I'm going to say in the next 10 minutes or so will necessarily stem from uh, the, the two cases uh, themselves, but I draw sort of more broadly of, uh, of my, um, my observation of student mobility from and to China. Okay, so I have two analytical categories. So first of all, I want to look at what I call the transfer of capital. Uh, which, I, which means the flows of capital as a result or accompanying the outbound and inbound ISM in case of, in case of China. And here I want to break down capital into three categories, financial and monetary, uh, human and talent, human capital, and finally symbolic capital. This, this analysis actually very sort of, uh, straightforward uh, in, in a sense. So if, you, let, let me, if we first look at uh, you know, outbound ISM and the resultant flow, outflow of capital, um, in terms of the transfer of economic capital, in 2017, China was the top supplier of tertiary international students to almost all leading nations in the developed world. US, Canada, UK, France, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Some of these countries have the most commodified higher education systems, with some of the highest tuition fees in the world. Given China's leading role in uh, sending students to these destinations, it is safe to you know, claim that uh, you know, a great amount of uh, financial capital is channeled out through student mobility. And of course, I'm skipping some status here, but uh, you, know, you, you can easily find out how much uh, the education industry, foreign students are bringing to these uh, economies. It, it's in the tunes of billions, if not tens of billions, uh, in terms of Chinese contribution to, to their economy. Of course, uh, you know, I think in Oxford that we are also, uh, international student mobility is, you know, if we be frank, it is an important source of uh, finance for, for institutions, not just Oxford, but UK as, as a whole as well. Um, when it comes to the outward transfer of human capital, the second category, uh, my ethnographic case in, uh, in, uh, of Chinese students recruited by Singapore already sort of, uh, sort of illustrates that, uh, you know, it is Chinese students or talent being appropriated by uh, a more developed state. But this is a rather limited case. If we look more broadly, um, I claim that uh, it has been and continues to be a norm for academically outstanding students in China to wish to further their studies in developed countries in the West, uh, especially the US. 
And a great deal of research has shown that uh, international students contribute disproportionately to research and innovation in destination countries. The majority of Chinese students who obtain outbound uh, mobility through academic merit, and here now I'm referring to those who have gone abroad uh, up to mid-2000s maybe, uh, the first few years of 2000s, up to that point, the cumulative return ratio was only 25%. It was only subsequently after the, you know, the surge in going abroad that return rate has increased. So what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is that those who went abroad through academic merit, many of them actually chose to re remain abroad and they did not return. Um, Hui Yao Wang and uh, David Zwei has this study, studying how the Chinese government's effort of recruiting back China's lost talent, human capital, right, China's brain drain. And their study found that the return of large numbers of the very best and very brightest is still not happening, uh, according to them. So I'm, I'm using that to sort of support my thesis that China support my thesis that China loses some of its top-notch human capital to Western developed nations through outbound student mobility. And lastly, concerning the third category of symbolic capital, I have already illustrated, even in the Singapore case, right, in, the, in a sort of uh, indirect way, uh, that uh, um, uh, there is this continued uh, you know, um, admiration and desirability being attached to Western destination countries and institutions. And that, that symbolic capital enjoyed by the West is what underpins, is what allows Western nations and institutions con to continue to extract financial and the human capital through China, from China. Alright, so I've used a sort of larger arrow to demonstrate uh, my argument that, uh, you know, there's uh, a significant amount of uh, capital, outward capital transfer through student mobility. Now we look at the, now we look at the inbound ISM and uh, the resultant inflows of capital. Um, well, it becomes clear that uh, the inward transfer of capital, human or economic, human or symbolic, to China through student mobility is, is comparatively insignificant. As I have already illustrated in my ethnographic case of Indian medical students in second-tier Chinese university, the lower tuition fees and living costs in China is one of the main attractions to the students in the first place. So, there's not much of a financial gaze in that sense. And China, the students drawn towards uh, degree studies in China are often academically uh, not top-notch or sometimes mediocre. And these uh, and thus embodying less human capital um, in addition to their, you know, the, their lack of economic capital in the case of the Indian students. And finally, despite China's apparent intention of using international education as a soft power uh, strategy or tool to win the hearts of students from uh, the develop developing world, the poor quality educational experience they receive in China, um, uh, received by student these foreign students in China, defeat the country's objective of generating or gaining symbolic capital. Um, and it can be added here, it's not just my study that found the students were dissatisfied and they do not develop really a good will towards China. Even uh, some scholars studying uh, foreign students' experience in, uh, in, Shanghai, in cities like Beijing, Shanghai, and Shen, uh, Guangzhou, these are the, more, you know, the most developed cities in China. Uh, students there, and with, you know, in, in very good universities, they have you know, uh, less than satisfying experiences. So my argument is really very simple and straightforward, that I think China, in, 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 you know, through outbound ISM, they lose more, much, much more capital than what it, it comes in. And that, of course, is my sort of way of saying you know, where China is located in a global sort of uh, system of uh, mobility, the hierarchy. Um, 
Okay, let me move on to the final section of my analysis, which is more of a hypothesis, I suppose. There will be more hypotheses here. Um, associated with this asymmetrical transfer of capital that China experiences through ISM, uh, there are uh, the production and the reproduction of various forms of social inequality. And these inequalities can be material or symbolic. They are found in both domestic and international spheres, sometimes co-constitutive, and they uh, concern multiple levels of actors, nation-state, institutions, communities, private families, and individuals. Concerning outbound Chinese student mobility, in more recent years, it seems increasingly clear that sending children for study abroad has become one, one, one way for China's very wealthy to hedge against political and economic uncertainties. Education serves as a legitimate pretext for the rich second generation, or the Fu Ar Dai, uh, individuals to acquire citizenship, residence, status, uh, and properties abroad, uh, which allow these elite Chinese families to diversify their material position as well as associated risks. Mobile Chinese students who belong to this extremely elevated category are often highly flexible in terms of their geographical mobility, uh, which best serves the maximization of capital accumulation. When it comes to the majority of outbound Chinese students who are not this verified category, arguably the recently observed rising trend of return, returning after study abroad, it masks a certain emerging uh, stratification among the returnees. And here, I'm, I'm, this is not backed by my study, but more of a hypothesis or observation on anecdotal evidence. For the more privileged ones, typically those who have studied at undergraduate levels, in Anglophone West, especially the US, to return to China is arguably a natural or at least preferred choice because of the strong economic and social capitals they can access back home. Since this group is already structurally privileged in the game of social reproduction in China, a study overseas helps to accelerate their accumulation but is arguably not essential to it. Um, by the way, this argument was recently, I, I read an article about Indian elites uh, uh, student mobility, and it was a very much similar case. The upper class Indians, uh, uh, upper class and high, uh, upper middle class, when they study abroad, they tend to immediately return because um, they are family business owners and so on back in their home country. Whereas for the middle middle class and so on, if they obtain uh, educational mobility, they tend to try to uh, they seek to remain in the destination country. Now, in contrast, for the rel relatively less privileged returnees, among whom majority would have undertaken graduate level studies, especially short-term taught master programs, the motivation and experience of return are arguably very different. I posit here that the diminished advantage of overseas credentials and the various challenges faced by returnee job seekers, as reported in some recent research, are primarily associated with this category of returnees. Indeed, I postulate that many uh, such Chinese student migrants from not exceptionally privileged backgrounds would prefer to remain in Western destinations for some time to recuperate their families' hefty investment in their education through earning income in foreign currencies as well as accumulating work experiences and to avoid China's increasingly unmeritocratic society that now even disadvantages against them. Um, their return to China is often not a first choice, but a forced a choice or forced by the lack of success in host country labor markets, as well as due to gen, uh, generally unwelcoming uh, climate to international student migration. 
So, as, as a, so my argument here is that as a private and individual strategy employed by the middle class to achieve positional advantage, studying abroad seems to be becoming riskier and less effective. So the return is, 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 is less, is diminishing as, as society strategizes. As the case of Indian students actually shows, uh, it, this student mobility for the not so privileged could actually be very exploitative. So this is why I think some scholars have now started to try to move away, of seeing, uh, of, move away from seeing student mobility as a reproduction strategy or social reproduction, but to see it as consumption. Uh, Lan Shanshan's work has recently uh, echoing uh, Gracia Liu Farah say, uh, argued that uh, you know much of the uh, more and more of the student mobility from China you see today is a consumption behavior. Now, if understood as a consumption behavior, one can argue educational mobility produces inequalities that are mainly symbolic as opposed to material. Different destination countries and institutions become associated with differentiated symbolic values manifested in terms of prestige and stigma. Viewing ISM from China as a form of consumption with, with no tangible economic return to the Chinese students who help uh, who, uh, uh, with no tangible return to Chinese students also helps to highlight the inequalities and injustice between international students and local students of the host countries. Because the international students typically pay, uh, are charged you know, higher and unsubsidized fees compared to domestic students, they effectively subsidize uh, receiving countries' domestic students and help keep the host higher education institutions uh, financially afloat uh, amidst you know, trends of funding cuts and so on. So this is more on the hypothesis or arguments about Chinese students. I want to finally move on to the Indian students for a little bit. Um, the case of Indian medical students in second and third tier Chinese universities helps expose the kind of symbolic as well as material inequalities that, that not only uh, structure student mobility from the developing countries to a semi-peripheral destinations like China, but also build inequalities that result from studying in such a destination. Um, students from the developed world, uh, especially the West, could afford to be uh, educational tourists for whom a short-term experience of culture and language immersion typically adds to their cosmopolitan cultural capital. In contrast, young people from uh, located at the lower rounds of a global political economic hierarchy can only access relatively low-quality education in semi-peripheral destinations such as China. And the professional academic qualifications gained there typically have very limited global currency. Indeed, not unlike how Chinese students who study at obscure institutions in the West are stigmatized as trashy in study abroad or large in Russia, in, in India there is increasing suspicion, if not stigma, attached to uh, students who obtain their MBBS uh, degrees from China. I think you've seen the, you know, uh, the snapshots from a uh, uh, news report earlier. So, I, I, in short, I argue that global student mobilities increasingly follow a stratified order, and the physical mobility appears more likely to lead to social reproduction and immobility rather than social mobility. Okay, finally I'm ready to conclude. So what I've done in this uh, talk is that I have attempted to locate China's place in the global landscape of ISM through describing and critically analyzing current student mobilities from and to China, supplemented by insights from my um, ethnographic research. I have argued that China occupies a semi-peripheral place in the global order of student mobility, 
given that the country is the largest source of international students to the West, yet it mainly serves as a cultural attraction for Western educational tourists, and, or, and as a compromised destination or solution for less privileged students from poorer developing countries. The paper tests upon this that China stands as a net loser uh, in the global order of ISM because the country experiences an exodus of monetary and human capital through outbound ISM, yet it only receives very limited inflows of uh, capital through inbound ISM. So China's such unbalanced engagement in ISM not only results from, but also reinforces the reproduction of inequalities of various kinds and various, on various scales. Right, that's very much it. Um, thank you very much.